I think we've pretty much uh, managed to get everybody in and seated. If you haven't got a seat, there's still seats here on the right-hand side. Um, welcome to the annual electoral convention. It is great to see you here. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm president of the Actuarial Society for a few more days, um, and, uh, and Roseanne will be taking over um, at, we'll have the official handover tomorrow morning. Um, firstly, it's a great convention in that we have 1,391 registered delegates, which is the biggest ever. Um, my feeling is Roseanne could only go downhill from here, so um, I, um, I'm going to leave on uh, uh, the peak. But it is great to have so many people here. Roseanne and I have been, we travel internationally and we talk to other actual organizations. And one of the things that we find with the other actual organizations is that they don't get anywhere near the level of engagement with their members that we get at the annual convention. Um, and it is a fantastic thing when we tell people that we have uh, 12, almost 1,300 fellows, and yet we get 1,391 uh, people to our convention. They are quite surprised. Um, and it's, uh, it is a great event, and it is a good event for opportunities to network and, and talk and meet people, um, and hopefully also for getting information and understanding something more of the challenges that we face as a profession. So thank you for being here. Um, we have the opening session. I've got a couple of housekeeping announcements which I just want to, um, to bring to your attention. Um, firstly, and most importantly, please turn off your mobile phone. Um, I think the convention always is if your mobile phone rings that you pay drinks for everybody else. So um, if you'd like to do that for 1,391 people, we'd be more than happy to send you the bill. So uh, please put your mobile phone on silent. Um, there is actually a convention app. If you haven't yet downloaded it, please download it. Um, not the least of which is, is that people can actually ask interactive questions. Uh, I'm speaking later on, and I'm going to ask an interactive question. So if you don't have the app and haven't got it downloaded, you won't be able to answer. Um, so please make sure that you do that as well. If you haven't yet found it out, the exhibition hall, which is actually two levels down on level zero, is where we will have the teas and lunches. Um, it's also where you can get coffee. Um, so that's the place to be for the lunches and teas, so please um, bear that in mind. And if you have dietary requirements, um, you need to make sure that you uh, notify one of the catering staff in the convention center, and they will make sure that your dietary requirements are met. So please um, remember all of those things. Um, the, um, the rest of the instructions and everything that you should find, you should be able to see in the app. So again, if you haven't yet downloaded the app, I'm sure everybody has got a mobile phone. Um, and then we're on Twitter. If you um, are following us, um, if you're not following us, please start following us. There's, uh, the, the hashtag is ASA2015, um, and you should be following the Actuarial Society, which is at ActuarialSA um, as well. So please do that as well and, and follow us on Twitter and post on Twitter. Um, we hopefully are trying to be in the modern age. Um, I know many people are not yet on Twitter, but um, it would be a good thing um, if you do that. I think that's pretty much all the housekeeping notices this morning. Our opening session um, this morning is going to be done by Nick Butner. Um, he is the Community and Corporate Di Program Director at Blue Zones. He's responsible for leading the development and implementation of the Blue Zones project in all of the Blue Zones communities and corporate sites across the U.S. He told me earlier when we were talking that he's just flown in from the U.S. and he's still feeling a little bit jet-lagged. Um, I said to him, I hope he doesn't fall asleep during the presentation. He promised me he wouldn't, so um, I, that's a good thing. In the last 20 years, Nick has led 17 expeditions over six continents around the world, three of which have been to the Blue Zone sites, places in the world where higher percentages of people enjoy remarkably long and full lives. Obviously, it should be a topic of interest to us as actuaries. And so, Nick, over to you. Thank you very much for coming. I'll make a deal with you. I promise not to fall asleep if you promise not to fall asleep. Um, you know, I want to start off with interactive questions, but instead of that online technology, I ended up writing it on the back of my boarding pass. And this is going to be really technical. When I ask you a question that pertains to you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and then you have to count the number of times that you raise your hand. And in the end, um, kind of the goal of this is, it's a quick little test to kind of uh, predict how long you're going to live. <laughs> so, do me a favor, raise your hand if you sleep at least seven and a half hours, um, at least five days a week. Good. There's some good sleepers in this room. 
Uh, raise your hand if you eat three full servings of vegetables and chips and ketchup don't count and you do that every day. All right. Um, raise your hand if you get at least 30 minutes of rigorous exercise every day, like yoga or running. All right. Raise your hand. This is a tough one. Raise your hand if you have not had unprotected sex in the last year. I like this group. All right, raise your hand if you belong to a faith-based organization and show up at least four times a month. Okay, good. I uh, have not smoked in the last five years. Wow, there we go. If you have three good friends that you can call on a bad day and they'll actually pick up the phone and listen. See, that one's a tough one. And the, the last one is um, if you want to live, to, if you think you'll live to your 90 and you actually want to, is the last one. Great. So um, for people that raise their hands, and, and, and this math is a little bit different just because of the actuary tables here in, in South Africa, um, but... On average, if you raised your hands twice, your life expectancy for a man is 58, um, and for a woman it's 61. If you raised your hand at least five times, it's 67 for a man and 71, or, or 71 for a woman. Um, 71 for a man if, and 75 if you raise your hand seven times, and if you raise your hands all eight times, it's... it's uh, um, 78 and 81. So, and I hope you guys don't mind, I kind of walk around a lot. What I want to do today is take you to the places in the world where people are living the longest life. And I want to share with you how they're doing it, not only as individuals, but what I think more importantly, how they're doing it as a community. There was something called the Danish Twin Studies that came out and said that 80% of how long we live is determined by lifestyle factors in our habits. Only 20% of how long we live is determined by your genes. Well, if lifestyle factors were so important, what we at Blue Zones wanted to do was travel the world, try to find the pockets in the world where people are living the longest life, where you have the lowest rates of middle-age mortality, where people are reaching... Uh, 80, 90, 100 at higher rates than anywhere else in the world. And I think more importantly, they're doing it with a fraction of the disease. So you have that good quality of life. Our premise was, again, if we could embed ourselves into these communities and really listen to them, we could create the de facto recipe for longevity. So we partnered with National Geographic, and we were able to find the five demographically confirmed places in the world, you notice that place in Russia where they're smoking four packs of cigarettes a day and drinking a bunch of vodka to make the list. We actually go there with demographers, um, doctors, epidemiologists. Um, we go through the birth and death records. We have the doctors do physicals on the, on the uh, centenarians. And Together, what we were able to find were the, were the nine commonalities, these nine lifestyle traits that flew through all the different regions that we traveled. And I want to share with you what they are. Um, but before I do, do you guys mind if I show you some of my vacation slides? I promise they're better than my grandmother's. So we found our first blue zone. This one in Italy, off the coast of Italy, in, uh, in Sardinia. There's actually about 14 villages there in the Highland region, about 42,000 people, and the highest rates of male centenarians in the world. It's a place where at 102, they're still riding bikes. In 104, they're actively chopping wood, and they can beat somebody 65 years their junior in arm wrestling. <laughs> the guy on the left is actually my brother Dan uh, a guy I've been doing these Blue Zones with for the last 15 years. He's my older brother. I don't know if anybody here has an older brother. I've got to tell you, it's incredibly disheartening just to see him get whooped by somebody. <laughs> I didn't tease him. So 
Sardinia is a home of shepherds. These are people that, that move throughout the day. They move their flocks over rugged terrain, but they get that good low-impact exercise where they're moving around every day. Um, because they were gone for sometimes days at a time, they had to come up with a portable food and unleavened bread made from durum wheat, which is the same wheat you might find in like a whole wheat pasta. Um, they came up with a grass-fed cheese called pecorino, or a cheese made from a grass-fed animal called pecorino. This is really high in omega-3s, uh, the fatty acids, the good kind. Uh, and a homemade wine called Caninao. And i got to tell you, there's nothing like the bouquet of stinky boots just to give that wine just a little more flavor. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering the other day, I was in Icaria, and I was watching them stomping on the grapes barefooted, and I was thinking, would I rather have somebody stomp on them barefooted or with boots on? <laughs> I digress. So we actually had this wine tested, found out that it has the highest numbers of polyphenols. Uh, those artery-scrubbing antioxidants as any other wine in the world. Um, this, is a, this is a longevity wine. They drink a little bit every night. They have a really healthy relationship with it, usually with their friends and with their family. Uh, they lived off a plant-based diet, up in um, fruits and vegetables that they grew in their own home. I remember uh, one of the centenarians, when he walked into his house, he picked the grapes off the top side of his house and threw them into his mouth. Um, were they vegetarians? No, they ate meat, um, usually pork. Uh, they'd have it about uh, four times a month only, though. It was that celebratory food that they'd usually have maybe after church. Um, but in portion sizes, a lot smaller than we tend to eat, about the size of a deck of playing cards. Again, only four times a month. But what I think was more important than their exercise, and even more important than... Um, the food that they ate, it was their attitude towards aging, which was so important. If you look around the world, it, it, social equity kind of reaches its peak at the age of 26. The older you get, you kind of start going down, downhill. Turn on TV, uh, go look at the, at the magazine in the grocery store. You see the older you get, the less revered you are. But the, in Sardinia, the older you got, the more revered you were. You were regarded as repositories of wisdom. Um, your kids, as you got older, would bring you into the house. You'd be surrounded with loved ones all of your life. But they'd expect you to do more than just sit around and watch TV. They'd expect you to actually participate, to help raise the kids, to help cook the food for the family. This is a culture where well into your 80s, 90s, and 100, you're still active in the uh, Civil Guard, you're still cleaning streets like this man at 100 years old. There's something else happening here that I think is pretty interesting. It's called the grandmother effect. In homes where you have one or more grandparent living in the homes, kids in that homes are actually healthier. They have low rates of disease and low rates of mortality. So you're kind of creating that virtuous circle where the kids are taking care of the grandparents and the grandparents then are taking care of the kids. Kind of. Can you guys see me if I'm down here? Do you guys mind? It's like moving around a little bit. We found our uh, second blue zone, this one in the East China Sea in the archipelago of Okinawa, Japan. Um, and it's here where you find the highest rates of female centenarians in the world. And these are the ladies that you want to, these are the, the people that we all want to emulate when we grow old. Uh, in, in Japan or in Okinawa, they have... Uh, they tend to really live a long life and die very quickly at the end. The compression of mortality, the time between when you get sick and when you die, is less here than anywhere else in the world. Um, in America, the time between when you get sick and die is about three and a half years. I've been trying to find the research here, and there's kind of numbers all over, but it's about four and a half years. Um, it's when you're spending pretty much all of your healthcare dollars. You know, it's kind of at that, that end of life. But in Okinawa, they figure out a way to compress it, to be able to spend more time with their kids, to spend more time doing the things that they want to do as they grow older. What are they doing? Well, it's a plant-based diet with fruits and vegetables, some that you know, maybe some that you don't know. D does anybody here know what this warty-looking cucumber thing is? It's called the bitter melon. Um, they chop it up, they stir-fry it with tofu, 
Uh, but it has the highest numbers of anti-inflammatories as any other vegetable. Um, again, a longevity food. More important than what they put into their diet, these guys were experts in what they took out of it. Um, I've had the, lecture, the luxury of sitting down and eating with centenarians all over the world. And in Okinawa, um, when you sit down, they always say the same three words before they eat. Hara, hachi, boo. Which means I'm only going to eat till I'm 80% full. When they start their meal, they're thinking, they're, putting their, they're controlling their caloric intake. I'm not going to overeat. And they have techniques set up to reinforce it. Uh, they get up every day, they do this thing called ancestor veneration at the beginning of the day and the, at the end of the day where they really try to kind of take that time out and remember where they came from. It really helps them reduce the stress. Um, we know from the Framingham research that isolation kills. Um, according to that research, what they're saying is if you have less than three friends, you're considered lonely. And people that are lonely, the impact that it has on your longevity is about the same as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Now, in Okinawa, I find this interesting. What they did is they create these things called moais. At a young age, when you're about eight, your, kid, your parents will put you in teams with other kids about your same age. Parents will cultivate those relationships until you reach your 20s, and now you have friends that last a lifetime, right? Now, the reason I'm showing you these, this picture, these five ladies have been part of the same Moai for 97 years. Their average age is 102. They get together every night. They drink our Mori, the Okinawan whiskey. They talk about the day's events. They eat the sobe noodles. They even argue about who that guy liked best back in 1939. <laughs> it was me! But it's incredibly stress-relieving to travel through life with this companion. This woman here on the, on the uh, left, she told me the first thing she does in the morning is she slides open her door and she looks out to make sure her friend's doors are open. And if they're not, she goes over and checks on them. So as you're growing old, you're not doing it alone. You have that support network built in. They have a strong sense of purpose in Okinawa that's Embodied in the word ikigai, the reason I get up in the morning, this 102-year-old karate instructor, every Sunday still teaches, still passes down the knowledge that he has in karate to the younger generation. And I hate to say it, but he actually took me down. But he was two years younger than the guy that took my brother down, so I'm not... Um, this guy, 97-year-old, um, a spear fisherman. What gets him off the couch every day is he still catches food for his extended family. And if you don't think this keeps him in good shape, you're nuts. And Kamada-san. Kamada-san's ikigai is her great, great, great-granddaughter. These two women are separate in age by 101 and a half years. Now, when we ask Kamada-san, you know, how does it feel to hold somebody over a century your junior? She looked up and she said, it's like leaping into heaven. Leaping into heaven. We found our third blue zone. This one actually in America it kind of shocked us right outside of L.A., Exactly, right? You got that cloud of smog following you. It's about 80 miles or 60 miles to the uh, east. Um, there's a place called Loma Linda. You get off on Loma Linda, and I promise you, the first two things you see is a Del Taco and a Wiener Hut. You've now found America's Blue Zone. Well, as it turns out, Loma Linda is the home of the highest percentage of seven-day Adventists, they, they're like conservative Methodists. They, they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday versus Sunday and they evangelize health and the healthcare system. Um, the uh, American Cancer Society National Institute on Aging have been researching these guys for the last 30 years to create what I think is the gold standard of epidemiology research. So normally in America, the life expectancy for a female is about 80 and for um, a woman, it's 89, or for an Adventist, it's 89. And men living in, in Loma Linda are actually getting over 10 years of life. 
Now, these are people that are living in the same general vicinity as people in L.A. and everywhere else in America, but somehow they're gaining 10 more years. What is it? Why is that? Now, the first thing people say is, well, it's genetics. Well, if you go to a, an Adventist congregation, you quickly see it's not genetics. They, you have people of European descent, African descent. You have people of Hispanic or Asian. It's like a congregational melting pot. So it's not that. Well, what is it? Well, for starters, they take their, their diet directly from the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 talks about fresh vegetables. It talks about seeds. It's the third blue zone in a row plant-based diet. The second thing they do is they keep holy that Sabbath. So on sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, it doesn't matter where your kids have to be driven, doesn't matter what the boss is telling you to do, these guys check out. They'll get up in the morning, they'll go to the church, they might do a potluck afterwards. Um, in the afternoon, right from the scriptures, is to do a nature walk. Definition of nature walk has changed a little bit. <laughs> but they still get out to spend time with their family to let the stress of the week go and focus on what's important. If you go to an uh, Adventist party, you see another big hit. They're not there drinking shots of whiskey and barbecuing. You know, instead, they're really focused on, on supporting each other in their faith and their, in their healthy eating. If you look at Loma Linda, the health traits that flow through that community, uh, they tend to be very positive. It's the home of this gentleman, Ellsworth Wareham, 97 years old. And when I met him, Ellsworth said, you know, he's talking about wanting to build a privacy fence around his house. So he called up a contractor to come over and contract goes, oh, it's going to cost you six grand. So what is that? Probably about 80,000 rand. And he said, well, for that price, I'm just going to build it myself. And this is a multimillionaire. And for the next three days, at 97 years old, you could see him shoveling holes and powering in cement. David McLean, our National Geographic photographer, said, I couldn't even keep up with him. And three days later, perhaps predictable, Ellsworth could be seen in the emergency room. But he's not the patient. He's actually the surgeon. <laughs> 97 years old, still did multiple open-heart surgeries every month. Um, this guy, Ed Rollins, he's a 106-year-old cowboy. I mean, 106 years old, gets up every morning, does a swim, and then on the weekends, he puts on the boards. <laughs> it's a little water skiing. And then Marge Deton. Marge is, uh, I, full disclosure, I never got a chance to meet Marge, but it was my brother's favorite. And what, uh, she'd get up every morning, she'd read her Bible at about four in the morning, she would um, have the same breakfast she's had for years, oatmeal, raisins, and nuts. Um, she'd chase it down with what she calls a prune juice shooter. I don't know if anybody knows what prune juice is and what that does to you, but if, if you do, you might want to just push that image right out of your mind. Um, she then lifts weights, jumps on her exercise bike for about uh, 20 minutes every day before she jumps in her car where she still volunteers for six different organizations, including, in her words, the Loma Linda Old Folks Home. Now, Marge is 104. So, I know you guys probably don't know a lot about my brother Dan and I, but we bicycled through six of uh, seven continents, went from Alaska to Argentina, around the world on the 45th parallel, uh, bicycled from Tunisia um, to uh, Nigeria, and then across the heart of darkness into Kenya, and then from there down to South Africa. Uh, it's all downhill, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Um, actually, I only made part of that until I got malaria at an opportune time. We've been um, held up by gorillas in Central America. We both had malaria, other illnesses. But Dan told me two things I'll always remember about March. He said that the most terrifying moment of his life was actually driving shotgun with March. <laughs> 
And the other thing he said is they stopped at a stoplight one day. And Marge kind of leans over to Dan and goes, Dan, I kind of feel sexier at 104 than I did at 103. <laughs> now, now think about that. Is that what you imagine 104 feeling like? Is that what it should feel like? So uh, Dan ended up writing these stories up for National Geographic, one of the uh, best-selling uh, National Geographics in history. Um, followed up, we found what we think are the last two blue zones, one in Icaria, or Icaria Greece, and then in the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica. Um, and in those, in our research, what we were able to do is define nine commonalities, these nine lifestyle traits that flew through all of the different regions that we travel. We call them the Power Nine. Um, these are simple traits that when integrated into your life can help you live longer, um, be happier. I'm going to share with you what they are today. Um, the first thing we saw is in the Blue Zone communities, we didn't see anyone joining health clubs, running marathons. For them, their life was surrounded by movement. Uh, they walked to their friend's house. They walked to church. They walked to uh, the restaurants, to the grocery stores. A guy that I met 80 years old bicycled to his mother's house. Uh, uh, every day, about 20 miles. Um, their houses didn't have the conveniences that we have. In Okinawa, they get up and down off of the floor. Uh, they didn't have remote controls. Uh, I met a woman um, of Buela Panchita in um, Costa Rica who mowed her lawn with a machete. First time I met her. The second kind of tier is that right outlook. I've traveled all over the world, and I've got to tell you, people have the same worries that you and I do. They worry about money, they worry about their health, and they worry about their kids. The only difference is in the Blue Zone communities, they had these simple techniques that help reduce the chronic swelling that's tied to most age-related diseases. These are simple techniques that help reduce swelling. They do the ancestor veneration. They pray. Uh, they do the hikes. Uh, little naps every day. In Sardinia, well, they do happy hour. Whoops. I don't think I was supposed to do that. The, the, uh, third, the, the third piece is, is they had a strong sense of purpose um, in those communities. Let me catch up on my slide really quick. Da-da. Strong sense of purpose. Does anybody here know what the two most dangerous years of your life are? Uh, they, they, it's the year that you're born and the year that you retire. You're actually 30% more likely to die the year that you retire than your last year of work. Now, why is that? Is it because you've decided to go hang gliding and scuba diving? No, it's because you lost that sense of purpose, that drive. All the way through your life, you're driven to be able to hang out with your wives and kids, to be able to raise a family, to work. And then all of a sudden you retire and it goes away. In all the Blue Zone communities, they not only had a sense of purpose, but they could articulate it. And people they could, that can articulate their purpose, it's tied to um, seven more years of longevity. The next column is around food. Um, research says a couple glasses of wine every day can help you live a longer life. But it's two glasses of wine, and no, you cannot save up and have 14 on the weekend. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. Um, they had a healthier diet. I think I actually have a slide that kind of talks about it a little bit. 90% uh, plant-based. Um, uh, carbohydrates and starch were 65% of their diets. And grains, sweet potatoes were a big piece of it. Um, beans, I think, is a cornerstone of every longevity diet. It's a great source of protein, um, very good. They ate meat less than five times a month, um, ate fish less than three times a week. Uh, they didn't have any cow dairy. It was more from sheep or goat was the dairy that they had. Um, according to the Adventist study, um, they say a couple handfuls of nuts every day can help you gain about two years of life. 
Um, and then they drank water, tea, coffee, and of course wine. Uh, the third piece is that Harahachipu, that 80% rule, do I need to, I mean, I think this is all over the world, but has our caloric intake increased in the last 20 years in your country? Yeah? So what they did is they'd have these simple techniques that help reduce, the, the, have a lower caloric intake. Pre-plating their foods before they eat. The, the mantra, the Harahachipu, those simple techniques. Um, and what I think kind of is the foundation that holds everything else up is the connect. They put their family first. As you grow older, you're still surrounded by your loved ones. Um, they tend to stay married. Um, people that are married live longer than people who don't. And they also invest in their kids, which isn't a bad thing as we grow older. Um, they have a strong sense of faith. Um, all but two of the centenarians we met had a strong sense of faith. Uh, research says that people that go to sh church um, and show up at least four times a month live four to 14 years longer than people who don't. Now again, I'm just telling you what the research says, and that's from Duke and Harvard University. Um, and the last thing is your friends matter. According to the Framingham study, what they said is if your three best friends smoke, they drink too much, they... they um, are depressed and unhappy, they're obese, there's a 150% chance that you are as well. That your friends matter. Think about it. Are you healthier with that friend that goes and gets drunk every night? Or are you healthier with that friend that, that, um, that likes to garden or, or eat vegetarian food? Now, I'm not saying get rid of your friends. I'm just saying that it's, it's not only important to kind of look around and kind of see how, how is that network around you reinforcing healthy behaviors. But the other thing that I mentioned earlier that I think is important is also having those friends that you can pick up that phone on a bad day and they'll answer. So I can keep on going on on this, but the problem is, is and I think you guys have already figured this out, that what I'm talking about are people that have been living this life for the last 100 years of their life. You know, this isn't like this new change. So how, what do we do? How do we change? How do we adapt when it comes to this? A lot of people start off by suggesting looking at diets as a starter. Well, the problem is diets don't work. If we got 100 people to, to do the Blue Zone diet, within three months, 10 of us would drop off. Within um, uh, seven months, only 10 people left. And after two years, almost no one. So you have sh short-term success, but long-term failure, right? If you're trying to develop a program that is fighting the chronic diseases that are killing our kids, this isn't the answer. And you see that same type of, of curve when it comes to gym memberships. I don't know if anybody's like me. When you join that gym, you start off hot and then you just end up writing the bill every month. And if we came up with that blue zone pill, that, that one pill you just take this every day and you live forever, we couldn't get people to take it long enough in order to work. So what does work? Well, back in 19, or 2008, we, Blue Zones got our second grant, this one to travel the world, to try to find places in the world that were fighting the chronic diseases that are killing our kids and winning, and sustaining it without the Hawthorne effect. Um, if you don't know what the Hawthorne effect is, it's usually when the researchers will come in and do their research, habits will change, but as soon as they leave, they go back to having those same habits that they had beforehand, right? We found two, one in northern France that um, was doing some great work around childhood obesity, and one in North Karelia, Finland, where back in 1974, they had the highest rates of cardiovascular disease in the world. Um, people were dropping dead at 56 years old. Um, now, the guy who ran the project, a guy named Pekka Puska, he knew individual responsibility is important, and people have to take responsibility for the life, and they knew discipline was important, but he didn't spend one dollar on that. Instead, what he focused on 
is that five-mile radius around where you work and where you live, where you spend 80% of what your time, and if you can optimize that environment to make the healthy choice the easy choice, you can impact population health. He was able to reduce male um, cardiovascular disease by over 60% and sustain it over the last 35 years. So when Blue Zones looked at trying to figure out how do we take our lessons from the Blue Zones into uh, communities in, in America, that's where we started. We looked at the individual. How do we look at the individual to change their environment, their kitchens, their bedrooms, their houses, to make it a healthy choice easier? How do you create social networks that reinforce healthy behaviors or give people the purpose that they need? Um, people that volunteer are actually healthier and have a lower BMI than people who don't. Um, and then take the program to where people work, where they live, where they play, to the, to the uh, grocery stores, to restaurants, to um, work sites where, I mean, how many hours a week do you guys spend in your work site? And that environment's pretty important, right? Um, schools, as well as faith-based institutions. And then um, what... Uh, Pekka thinks is one of the most important areas is the policy in your community. Um, what's your policy around fresh fruits and vegetables? Is, it, is, it, is there good access? Is it affordable for everyone or just the people who can afford it? Um, what's your policy in the community around tobacco? Is it, can you smoke inside and outside? Um, how hard is it for you to purchase it? And the last one is the built environment. Um, are your roads built for, um, are, are your roads just as easy to bike and walk on as it is to drive a car? Are they safe? So when Blue Zones looked at kind of trying to transform communities, we kind of took this model on to see if it worked. We found a small town in southern Minnesota um, that we wanted to really kind of give this a try. It's called Albert Lee, population about 18,000. Um, it's just a small kind of rural community. Um, we went into the community uh, with a guy named Dan Burton, who's an expert on built environment. He's worked with about 4,000 communities around the world to try to make that environment. And we didn't go in to tell him this, what you have to do. Instead, we listened. What do you want as a community? What do you, what's important to you as an individual, as a family member? We listened. We looked at their, at their maps, at their reports, and after a couple months, we came up with some suggestions. Starting with, they had four communities, but no way to get downtown without crossing a busy street, without, without um, going across uh, a field. So we created a couple miles of sidewalks in the community. In downtown, when they were looking at redoing the roads, they wanted to widen Main Street and increase the speed limit, which is a great thing to do if you want cars buzzing through the middle of town, but if you're trying to try to create a place where people can recreate, is it a good idea? No. So we looked down the block, and they had this beautiful lake, a great place to recreate, but no way to get around it. So we said, use the money to build a walking path. And now you go downtown, Albert Lee, any day of the year, and people are walking. You don't have to give anybody a gym membership, pay anybody to do it. Once it's built, people are using it. Um, it impacted active transportation in that community by over 200% just by building it. Um, created community gardens where people could grow fresh fruits and vegetables, where they could share ideas and meet like-minded people. Went into restaurants, um, brought in an expert in, in restaurants to try to lower the caloric intake, not to change the restaurant and the business owner, but how do you um, lower that caloric intake? Um, do you guys ever, do they ever serve bread with your meal when you go to a restaurant? Yeah? Do you guys ever eat that bread and by the time your meal comes, you've already... So what Brian said is, still serve the bread, but what if you made... What if the customer had to ask for it? So again, that healthy choice is easier. Um, to look at your menus, um, instead of um, chips coming with your food, what about it, the default being fresh fruits and vegetables? You could still ask for the chips, but the default is that healthy option. Um, millions of things. Do you guys know 
what that one thing you put on a menu, and this is worldwide, that one thing you put on a menu that guarantees that nobody wants to eat it, the healthy choice. Who the heck wants to eat the healthy choice? People want something that tastes good. So you can design menus in simple ways by just advertising the, the, the pasta primavera salad that, or descriptors like fresh and crispy that helps make, those, that helps make people want to order those healthy alternatives. Went into the grocery stores to take the healthy foods, to talk to people about how do you, make, um, how do you cook this? What's the value of it? What's the last thing you see in, a gro in uh, grocery stores? Is it the healthy food? We tried to blue zone the checkout lanes so that when people went to, to pay, it was a healthy food. Um, worked in work sites to change the food environment, but also to get people up and moving throughout the day. Stand up desks, to get out walking, to get just stretch breaks. Again, keep you moving, keep your mind moving better, but it also created social um, friendships. Um, one of the biggest impact of whether or not somebody wants to go to work is whether or not they have a good friend. Um, went into schools to look at not only curriculum, but create policies around healthy eating, healthy behavior. I want to try something here, um, and I don't know what my response is going to be, so bear with me. Um, did anybody here walk to school when they were young? Can you raise your hand? So, a lot. Now, for the people that raise your hand, raise your hand if your kid or grandkid walks to school. So this is a worldwide thing. So what we tried to do, and part of in America, it's around safety, it's a big concern. So what we ended up doing is we still have that, that yellow school bus. Um, but we did is walking school buses where the bus or the parents or whatever the transported would drop the kids off about a kilometer away from school and you get the teachers and you get the uh, parents or volunteers to walk with the kids. So they're getting exercise before they get into it. It helps their cognitive thinking and increases the results in the school, creates friendships. Simple thing to do. Um, we ask people to look at their personal environment, look in their kitchens, um, uh, to how do you change and kind of make it again an environment that makes that healthy choice easier. Um, their research says if you have a 14-inch plate, if you move that to a 10-inch plate, it reduces your caloric intake by 20%. Um, growing gardens, getting that healthy fruits that you're doing yourself. Um, we created these, these, those moais, those things that those cute ladies in, Japanese, in Japan did. Started relationships with people who didn't know each other. We asked them just to walk for 10 weeks, once a week, 30 minutes. And what we found out is six years later, 60% of these relationships are still together today. They've created lifelong friends. Now, we got a bunch of publicity on this, which is all nice, but I think where the really the value was is um, Walter Willett, the head of the University of uh, Harvard Medical School, said that um, all the stuff that we put in are still in place six years later. So now that we've left, they're still there. Um, we had in the project um, about a quarter of the population participate. 51% um, of the largest work sites, it reduced absenteeism by 20%. Now, does that have an impact on, the, uh, on that business owner? Um, more years of longevity. Um, they ended up uh, doing over 2 million steps more active in the first year. Um, we reduced city health care claims by 40%. People were, less people were going to the emergency room, less people were going sick. Um, we went to scale the project. We went to the beach cities communities down in L.A. Um, three communities that a lot of people thought were very healthy, but if you look at the stress levels, you look at traffic, you look at smoking rates, they're out of hand. Um, after a couple years um, of our work, we went kind of back in. We saw that smoking rates decreased by 30%. Um, BMI, the body mass index, went down. We found out a couple weeks ago that childhood obesity, we actually cut it in half um, in the four years that we've been in that, doing the project. Um, these numbers are actually not from me. They're from Gallup. They oversample the communities for us. 
at the beginning and then go in every year and do it, but people found it to be a better place to live, better place to work. Um, and from that, we've now in, we've had over a thousand communities worldwide ask us to come in. Um, we're in 28 communities right now, including um, Fort Worth, Texas. It's my job. I'm the one who gets to tell Texas that they can't eat meat. <laughs> Does anybody want my job? <laughs> uh, but I also have to go to Hawaii, which is the one that makes people feel sorry for me the most. So. And I know this number is, is kind of a U.S.-centric number, but do I have to tell anybody in this audience that we have a healthcare crisis in the world today? That if current trends continue, um, uh, there's going to be a large increase of obesity. We're already, it's already on the rise. We spend over $2 trillion a year. Um, That's just in the United States, worldwide multiple, multiple trillions of dollars fighting diseases that are curable, the diabetes, the heart disease. Now, why is that? Is it because we're stupid? No, I think the biggest problem is our environment has changed. Our environment around the world has changed. Um, Since the earliest man who walked not far from here, we're hardwired to crave salt. We're hardwired to crave sweets. We're hardwired to kind of relax. But our environment has changed. You can't go to fill up your tank of gas. You can't turn on your TV. You can't walk through an airport without being bombarded by unhealthy messages. Now, you as an individual, you make about 250 health decisions a day, consciously and unconsciously. An individual responsibility and discipline is important, but the problem is discipline is a muscle. And muscles fatigue, eventually you break down and you grab that Snickers bar, you do that, grab that cigarette. The answer to me doesn't lie with large pharmaceuticals, it doesn't lie with large governments, what it lies with us as a community, looking around the world, people are growing old in ways that we emulate, in ways that we want to grow old. And try to take those evidence-based practices and bring them into our life, so that we can wake up one day, look at that person lying next to you and say, you know what, I kind of feel sexier at 104 than I did at 103. Thanks a lot, I appreciate it. I don't know if we have time. A couple of minutes. A couple of minutes. We'll take a couple of questions if, um, if anybody has got a question. We've got a few minutes before we need to wrap the session up and I'm sure there's some people who have um, some questions they would like to ask Nick. Or did I put you to sleep? There's a question right here in the front. So I'm not sure if we've got mics, but uh, you can maybe just repeat the question once. Uh, it's more than observation than a question. Uh, my my sort of area of interest is, um, is happiness studies and happiness in old age in particular. And when I was watching your presentation, it was just like I could have replaced the word with happiness and every single conclusion that you are bringing. It's exactly what's wrong with happiness. All those things, society, the community, friends, family, having a sense of purpose, eating healthy, all that stuff. Right. And happiness, I think, all those people look really happy. That's exactly right. What she's saying is that uh, the interesting thing about the, the, the presentation was that it, it, she's been doing research on happiness in some of the happiest places in the world and found kind of the same conclusions around having that sense of purpose, having that drive. There's financial that comes in there as well. Um, we actually have done um, research on happiness as well in Singapore, Denmark, and uh, in Mexico. Um, and we're actually looking at a third one, we think Costa Rica, or a fourth one. But yeah. Does anybody else have a question? Or Yeah. I think there's a mic coming for you. Sorry, any research in Africa in terms of a potential blue zone? Anything that you've done locally? We, we right now have spent about the last four or five years really working with our model and now we're starting to kind of look at, um, we've had some communities come up to us and ask us to try to take the model international um, through Dubai and Europe and other ways. Um, this is really the first time that I've done any presentations in South Africa but I honestly believe that our model is kind of works across it works where everywhere. It's, I'd love to do something here 
in South Africa because I really believe that the model is the same. It's how do we change our environment to make that healthy choice easy choice. Yeah. Now we can take one did, last question. Did your research indicate that the speed of eating is as important as the portion? It, does the speed of eating um, and as the portion? Um, no, we've really kind of only looked at the portion sizes as well as the diet. Um, how are you getting those nutritions, the, the nutritious balanced diet um, that the Blue Zone communities did based on the Mediterranean diet or based on some other areas? But we, I haven't looked at the speed of how fast you eat, no. Um, we, what they tend to do that I thought was interesting is their biggest meal of the day was their breakfast. And if you think about it, it's actually, it's actually is, I think, the most important meal because, you know, you're, you're getting up in the morning, you, have that, you haven't eaten for a long time, you get that good base that hopefully kind of takes you through to that lunch. So you're not hungry and snacking all the way. Um, so they eat their breakfast as a, like a king, they eat their lunch like a prince, and then their dinner like a pauper, kind of late at night. Because they didn't, they just went right to bed usually afterwards, so that they didn't need all those dead calories that they're lying in bed, letting their body take. So, great. Well, now I'm going to hang around for a little bit. If anybody has any other questions, you feel free to come up to me. But again, I appreciate you guys having me here, and I hope you enjoyed the message. Ah, uh, thank you. I'm sure you'll agree with me that uh, that was a fascinating talk. So thank you very much, Nick. We really appreciate it. Uh, I hope it's a glass of wine that we're giving you. But uh, um, thank you. It's a small gift from the Actual Society. So thank you for coming. I appreciate and it. Thank, thank you. you very much. Um, as uh, Nick has said, he, he will be around, so if you would like to chat with him, you're welcome to do that. Um, we are going to move now to our next concurrent sessions. One of those sessions is in here, so um, those people who are staying here can stay here, but otherwise, if you can move along to your next session. Uh, there are snack bars, I believe, as you exit that you may want to grab as well. Thank you very much. Did that work? Yes, excellent. It was uh, perfect. So.